Jesus taught us to pray, his disciples, and therefore us as his disciples as well, that we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come. And I don't know what goes through your mind when you come to that part of the Lord's Prayer, but we understand that God has, in his wisdom and sovereignty, chosen a timeline and a rollout of what he wants to have happen here on planet Earth and his creation, uh, something very specific. The neat thing is we know that his kingdom will come. This is not a, I hope it's going to come. It's a matter of when it's going to come. I mean, we even know how it's going to come as we read our Bibles. And, and so if we're in the dark, it's really our own, own fault because God has revealed so much of this to us. Now, there's a lot that we don't know. And I think we're, we all find ourselves curious about the things that the Bible is silent about. You know, and I, as a pastor, I get questions pretty frequently from people about, oh, pastor, you know, do you think it's going to be like this in heaven? You know, will we be like this in the new earth? Uh, will we have that? You know, will my puppy dog be in heaven? Some, you know, all these neat things. By the way, that's an adult that asked me that question, not a kid. But, um, you know, and, you know, I, I have to wonder, you know, does God kind of smile at some of these things? I think the wonder, you know, uh, is good for us. It's, it's desirous that we should come to the Word of God hungry. But we also have to be careful about not trying to uh, put in the form of dogmatism, you know, things that we say we're certain about, where really the Word of God doesn't allow for us to be certain. Sometimes we speculate a little bit, but let's remember that it belongs in that camp of thought. But there's so much we can know for certain. And what we have to realize this, God's given us exactly what we need to know for a reason. And and if we needed to know more, he would have given that to us. We have a very complete revelation, the Word of God. And so when we go to it, it's like, okay, he's spoken this way. He's revealed this to us. Now, what, what am I supposed to do with all this? So as we go through these messages that have a prophetic flair to them, as well as a historic significance to them, I'm going to always... Um, kind of stitch throughout it some personal application, but then always come at the end and try to tie things up with a, a so what for us, if you could. Uh, what's the takeaway? But I also want to kind of recap a little bit without um, spending way too much time and just saying what I've already said in the past. So I will leave it to you if you're jumping in here and this is uh, you haven't heard the previous messages in this series, to encourage you to go back through our website. You can definitely take advantage of that if that's something that you would like to do. But we begin with this individual of great character named Daniel. He's, he's already been introduced to us in this book as a godly man in the opening chapters. He's also someone who God has given the ability to interpret dreams. And now we find in Daniel 7 that Daniel is given his own vision, his own dream. And we've talked a little bit about the significance of this. But we need to understand that why God might be doing this. And this does fall a little bit in the speculation because God doesn't tell us, this is why I'm giving Daniel the vision. But we know the people of God are in captivity. They have been for many decades. And Daniel now receives this vision, and really as you read it, you can't help but see that this would form some encouragement to Daniel and to those that he would share it with. You, you, if you could put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish people that are in captivity, that have been taken away uh, in a very dramatic way from their homeland, displaced, uh, and they're not going to be very happy about this, they either have to stay in kind of a, uh, a passing through mindset, or they have to settle in and adopt the ways of their captors and Babylonians, which we know many of them do, which wasn't a good thing. Uh, they begin to lose their heart when it does time for them to go back 
to their land. Some of them don't want to go because they adopted the paganism and the, the ways of their captors. But God's people always need to have, in whatever age we find ourselves, present day or Daniel's day, this mindset of, you know, as I look at the world through a biblical worldview, I'm going to realize that there's a lot that could discourage me. But what lifts my heart up is God's ultimate plan, God's eternal plan. And that's what we see here. Psalm 8, 4, uh, David, the psalmist, is remembering this, and, and he's just kind of dumbfounded, as we should be, when he says, What is man that thou, he's praying to God, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You ever really stop and think about this? Wow, that God chooses to communicate to us is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, sometimes we might not think that way, and that just probably means we have way too much, we think way too highly of ourselves, but when we understand how great and spectacular God is and how really poor and lowly we are in comparison, the fact that we can open our Bibles anytime we want and say, you know, God's giving me direction. I can see my God. I can learn about my God uh, is a pretty remarkable and a humbling thing is the way we should look at it. And to pray, and, and God answer our prayers very specifically. You know, God, you know, lead, lead me across someone's path that I can, you know, be an encouragement today. Uh, you might pray for rain, and all of a sudden, you know, the Lord brings rain. You know, God answers prayers very specifically for those that pray in faith. Now, to recap what's going on with Daniel's vision here, because... Today, we just kind of jumped right into the middle of it. There's really been two uh, visions. One, it was Nebuchadnezzar's, and then now Daniel's. And though they're very different, there is a lot of parallelism. In Daniel chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's vision, now Daniel's vision. And there's really four components. And, the, and as the attendant of the Ancient of Days tells Daniel, because he goes up to him and says, can you explain this? Isn't that interesting, by the way, that Nebuchadnezzar came to Daniel for the interpretation of his dream, and God worked through Daniel and gave him that insight to answer uh, what it was all about. But Daniel himself doesn't intuitively know exactly what's going on uh, and doesn't even put two and two together like we see right now. And again, maybe this was God keeping Daniel somewhat humble, wanting him to reach out for that information. We don't know for sure. But there's definitely four kings, four empires that are represented by the medals in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of, or the various beasts that now Daniel has at the beginning of chapter 7. We know that the fourth kingdom, which is represented by uh, the, the lower legs and even into the feet area, uh, and the fourth beast uh, represent yet a future kingdom uh, for us today. Now, several of these kingdoms for Daniel were still future. He was just in the, the midst of the first and partially the second kingdom. Uh, we know that Greece was going to come and ultimately Rome is going to come. But the fourth empire seems to have a reviving or a return or a resurgence. And that's yet to come. And so Rome has, has fallen. We understand that in many ways. Some will talk, historians will talk about how we still see elements of that Roman Empire uh, still has infiltrated a lot of European countries and things like that, though Rome is no longer an empire itself. And yet when we come to future prophecy, the tribulation period, some will refer to that time of the Antichrist rule as the revived Roman Empire. And that's even seen in the feet area of the statue and also in the horns of the great fourth beast that are here. This final kingdom that we're talking about, we, we could really say a fifth kingdom, uh, will be defeated when Christ comes a second time. If you're familiar with terms like the Battle of Armageddon, we know that that's the time of Christ's second coming. By the second coming, we're talking about his coming to earth. 
He came the first time as a baby, lived, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven. We understand that. His second coming to earth will be at the battle of Armageddon where he leads a great victory, rescues uh, the Jewish nation uh, from what seems like certain defeat. There is another coming of Christ, but not to the earth. It's a coming in the air. And what do we call that, folks? We call it the rapture. And, of course, uh, that is going to have specific significance for the church and all saints at that time. Part of Daniel's vision after seeing these four very unsettling beasts is he sees a very positive picture of the Ancient of Days, if you would. All right, the Ancient of Days. Uh, And this is just one picture here that might help us to get an idea. And although impressive these world empires might seem to us, then you get a, 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 a glimpse of the divine into heaven, if you would, is really what we seem to be seeing in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7. And we're even told, uh, as Paul's talking to believers in our age, the church age, that while we're thinking about death, physical death, and the sorrow that goes with that, our hope is about the fact that we don't stay dead. There is an eventual resurrection of our body. Uh, we call it the first resurrection as we discuss it, uh, where there's going to be a, a raising up. Even with regard to the rapture, it says that uh, we which are alive and remain, you know, at that time, we shall not prevent or precede those that are the dead in Christ. They shall rise first, that first resurrection, the graves open, and so forth like that. And so we have hope that this isn't the end of the story, that we die, there's a casket, you're put in the ground. We don't believe in ionization, you know, that we're just going to be annihilated and obliterated and we cease to exist. The soul that we have continues to live on, but even our body will be somehow supernaturally, divinely reconstituted, remade, transformed, and, uh, and caught up with the Lord if we perish and pass away before Christ comes for his church. But notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. And again, this is talking about the governmental aspects of what's happening here at the second coming of Christ. Uh, man will seem to be at his zenith when it comes to worldwide power. What do we hear even now? I, I remember uh, senior George Bush, you know, talking in more glowing terms about globalism and, you know, one world government in glowing terms. And we see through technology and transportation so many different things, a, a real attempt, a real stress to try to bring together humanity in so many different ways. And yet we know that that's not going to be successful. Uh, There's going to seem to be a uh, bringing together of all humanity in a singular government, global government, under Antichrist. Many people believe it is the very dramatic snatching away of the church that's going to bring that on. I'm, for one, see that as very likely. You have, you know, thousands if not millions of people all of a sudden disappearing from the earth. You know, people will come up with all sorts of explanations for that. We know what the Bible explains that it is. But it's going to throw the world into some sort of chaos, and they're going to be looking to someone who can bring everybody together. And, of course, that will be what we call the Antichrist. But no matter how powerful humanity may ever seem to get, we know God's power will ultimately overpower all. That's what we're seeing here as we look at the text of Scripture uh, that we're considering here. In this passage of Scripture, you know, verse 14, for instance, uh, talks about 
they're being given this dominion, glory, and kingdom. Uh, who's this talking about? Well, back in verse 13, it's talking about the Son of Man. Son of Man was one of the favorite terms in the New Testament, but obviously it didn't begin in just the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament here. It's referring to the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. We know to be Jesus, identified in the New Testament. The Ancient of Days, first person of the Trinity, the triune God, the Father. Now we have the Son approaching, if you would. Not lesser in power, not lesser in importance, but we know that Christ works and serves in a submissive role to the Father, uh, bringing about the eternal plan of the unified triune God. And so here is this approach, the Son of Man coming and being brought before Him. We know that Jesus hasn't received the respect. We, we know that He hasn't been given uh, the, the kingly authority on the earth. We know that that was the, one of the three temptations that Satan tried to lay before uh, Christ during that 40-day temptation in the wilderness, right? The third thing was, hey, if you will bow down before me, I will give to you all what Satan told him. Kingdoms of the earth, right? Well, Jesus didn't need to bow before Satan then because in the perfect timing, it's going to happen. He's going to receive this. What do these words signify in verse 14? Dominion, kingdom, uh, glory. Dominion, they all sort of reference the same thing about his kingship, but different nuances. For, for instance, dominion seems to speak of the authority. And we understand that, right? Um, even uh, now we talk about the dominion that some ruler has. Uh, what kind of authority? Uh, what kind of um, say-so do they have in being able to bring about laws and judgments that they put into place? The glory speaks of the honor that is associated with that particular role that Christ has. And then the kingdom really speaks of the realm, the expanse of it. Uh, you know, kings have kingdoms that are usually described in boundaries geographically. But we know that there will be no limitations to the boundaries of Christ. Uh, he will become king of all the earth, of all the universe in this way. Currently, Christ is being recognized, and this is sort of the beauty of what we're seeing here, and as we read things like the book of Revelation, we see that already Christ is being recognized for the king that he is, for his ruling in heaven in this fashion. He's not twiddling his thumbs. Uh, everything's going to happen in its proper time and its way. But this is why we come to a verse like 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22 that brings hope to us and Peter's talking about the ascension of Christ going up into heaven and probably this kind of teaching this kind of uh, theology has really helped transform Peter to be the solid Christian and faithful teacher and preacher of the word of God that he is after Christ has gone back into heaven because he says of Christ who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, a place of special prominence, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Right now. Uh, he's not waiting for that to happen. Jesus, as we speak right now, in the heavens, is ruling those deities, those, um, those angels and those created beings. And there is a hierarchy, we understand, within heaven. Sometimes as you read Revelation, you see, oh, there's these four and twenty elders, you know, and you see these beasts and uh, shining ones and all sorts of things. Well, God has created in the, the spiritual realm, they're all spirit creatures, and they all have maybe different levels of abilities, perhaps, based on what we see, um, but there's Definitely more of a myriad to variety of what's in heaven as far as beings are concerned than just generic angels, 
you know, picturing with wings and so forth like that. And yet all of this, all of this, Jesus is currently controlling and directing. And yet this Son of God, this member of the Godhead, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, came to earth and he humbled himself. He took on the role of a servant. Doesn't that just really blow your mind, folks, that Christ, who deserves all the honor and glory, would endure and be put in that servile role? It really puts into perspective that it wasn't just a distinguished rabbi one day that took off those, those garments designed respect or communicated respect from those that saw him but it was the god of heaven that got down on his knees girded himself took the cloth and began to wash his disciples feet taking what in that culture would have probably been the most servile role that anybody could take on that's our lord that's our god jesus is not afraid to humble himself, as Philippians 2.8 says, when he came to do the work of redemption. And yet, he is coming back someday to rule here, just as he is already ruling in the heavenlies. If we continue on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, we're given a little bit fuller explanation. And I believe what is said here in Philippians 2, 9-11, kind of augments or complements what's going on here in Daniel's vision. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Notice that. Not just the knees of spirit beings in heaven. Every knee. Do you have knees? You know what? Every human being has knees. And that is something that we know you, you think through with a little bit of measured calculation before you just do it. Even uh, Daniel's friends, remember, they were careful not to kneel at the wrong time before the statue that the pagan king had put before them. Why? Because they knew that their homage, their worship, their respect only belonged to the one true God. And they were willing to pay the price for that. You know, people still are unwilling to humble themselves. Now, you don't have to just say, I'm not going to kneel. It can be a simple thing of, no, I don't want to hear about your relationship with this Jesus Christ. I'm happy for you. But it's almost like they're afraid they're going to catch what you've got. And maybe they've worked ahead in their minds, and they know that the ultimate conclusion is, if I if listen to this and I buy into it, I know I'm going to have to bow to Jesus. I'm going to have to kneel in my heart to him. But you know what? As I've told more than one person, you know, kneel to him now as Savior or kneel to him someday as your judge. But every knee shall, shall bow, the Bible tells us. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen to that. And we know that this ought to cause the unsaved, the lost, to tremble. What does it cause us as believers to do? It ought to cause an excitement, a fervency about what is ahead for us. And so as we're thinking about this glorious kingdom of Christ, of the Ancient of Days before us, we're reminded that the, the human empires are going to be toppled. And yet Christ's kingdom shall never be destroyed. Isaiah 9-7 puts it this way, just after we have the 9-6 and the reminder to us that uh, there's going to be this messianic uh, verse that speaks of the coming of Christ. Uh, his first occasion, all of a sudden it jumps then to his second coming. And that's what I was talking about as you read the Bible uh, sometimes you're reading and all of a sudden it's like, wait, this doesn't really kind of go with the time when he came the first time. And that's what verse 7 is. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be 
no end, ever, out into eternity. From henceforth, and just in case we didn't get it, you could almost put a period there, but God really just kind of takes a little further and says, from henceforth, even forever. So, this is one of the ways that we know that there will never be another fall in the future. That's a question sometimes that, you know, I have heard voice. It's like, well, God made everything in Genesis 1. He made it all good. You know, it all, you know, how it all starts off and great. Puts man and woman, they're sinless. Puts them in a garden, it's great. You know, no problems. And then there's sin. There is a, an act of the will by humanity to go away from God. We see it also of Lucifer, who was this amazingly beautiful, incredibly specially gifted, angelic-type creature, and he falls away in heaven as well. You know, could there ever be that again? And it's verses like this that tell me, no, God is forever settling that Christ's kingdom will never have an interruption ever again. Christ's kingdom on earth will move into eternity with no possibility of another rebellion or uprising. Jesus won't have to retreat back, so to speak, not that he's in retreat mode, but there won't be this pause where he's no longer ruling on earth. He's going to be dealing with things in a permanent way. Hebrews 12, 26, we are told that God will not only shake the earth, and, and actually, let's just turn over here to this passage of Scripture. There's a few things I think it would be good for us to see in this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12. Of course, the whole book of Hebrews refers to the superiority of Jesus Christ, of the Son of God. As we come to the end of chapter 12, there is a, a reference to the, the giving of the law in verse 21. And there is a, a fear, there's a quaking. If you go back and read that account, you can see there, there's the smoking Mount Sinai. I mean, it must have been very terrifying to witness this. And all the children of Israel waiting down at the foot of the mountain, Moses has gone up into the cloud. They can't see him. So we're like that. And so in, in this passage of Scripture, we're told in Hebrews verse uh, 26 of chapter 12, whose voice then shook the earth. Wow, how incredible that must have been. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So what's that referring to? It must be referring to when Jesus comes as king. If we continue on into verse 27, it says, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken. So he's using this word shaken, shaken, to, to make a point. He's starting with the, the, the picture that they had in their mind of how everything just rumbled under the feet of the children of Israel there as they were at Sinai. And of course, that's very unsettling. But there's more that God's going to shake is the idea. And those in verse 27 that are shaken, we are told in this verse, will be removed. And those which cannot be shaken are going to remain. Well, who is this talking about? Well, clearly it's talking about the lost and the saved. It's talking about the elect and the non-elect here in this passage of Scripture. And that prepares the way of the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ here on earth going out into eternity. And because there's been that separation, that dealing with, you know, who's shakeable, who's not shakeable, now in verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. There you go. It's an impossibility that there would ever be anybody a part of this future kingdom that could be shaken. Again, you see my point of saying that what we're going to be experiencing after the second coming Christ, His kingdom, we don't have to worry. Will there be some other angel that will go rogue? You know, like Lucifer did? No, that will all be dealt with in a very final way. And so, 
What is our response? Our appropriate response even now is, as this verse says, serve God acceptably with two modes in mind, with reverence and godly fear. Wow, what a great place for us to pause and just each of us ask the question, does my lifestyle currently please God? Is the way I'm conducting myself on a daily, routine basis, does it speak of what it's going to look like for all beings moving out into eternity once the shaken has taken place and Christ's kingdom is set up? Because it will operate in this spirit of reverence and fear and respect and honor to Christ perfectly in that day. So, do you think we should just say, well, I'll wait and do it when that time comes? Or should we instead say, Lord, help me to be in your grace and in your spirit, be living with that spirit of reverence and fear even now in my personal life. Good thing for us to have a little bit of introspection about. Good thing for us to kind of analyze and do some heart searching about in our lives. Well, maybe as we go back to Daniel chapter 7, and see uh, our prophet here, Daniel, once again, in verse 15, we can understand that he's a little troubled. The visions trouble him. Well, I can understand why it might trouble him. It's not because he's, you know, going to um, fear that the wrong side's going to win. He's been given a lot of information. He, he sees all this. But maybe he doesn't know how to make heads and tails of it quite yet. That seems to be the case. That's why he goes and talks, gets a little bit of a inf- information here. And that in of itself is important for us to understand. Information without illumination can bring on just irritation. I find a lot of people who have gleaned a lot of information in their lives, but they don't Get the gist of why it's there. Why God put it there. Is it just so we think, oh, that's cool, that's neat, that's amazing. Or, you know, let me see this and I can talk to my friends about that. Or is there a practical application that drives it home to how, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of men ought we to be? There is a life living out of what we see. So therefore, we've got to discern. We've got to know not just the information of the Bible. We've got to get the importance of why God gave us that information. In other words, Daniel had the data, but he needed some divine discernment. Enters the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit if we have Christ as our Savior. He is the internal guide. He guides us in all the truth. Praise God for that. I hope that part of your quiet time and your Bible study involves a welcoming the Holy Spirit to open up the truth, to know what God's intention by what is in front of you is, and not just, well, what does it mean for me? That falls into the area of application, and that might look a little bit different of learning about the truth and the principles of God's Word, which are timeless, and they are uniform across the board, but the application, because my situation differs from your situation, is going to be very personable. And it's exciting to me when God gives me something in His Word, and it's like, oh, this is how I'm going to handle this situation. Lord, thank you so much. I've been praying about this, and you gave me this verse today. You unlocked its meaning and significance for me, and now I can apply it to my life. I can go in the strength of it, the sword of the Spirit. I know how to wield it in this situation. That seems to be what's going on here for Daniel, this one that stood by in verse 16. Probably if we go back to verse 10, and you might have a cross-reference Bible that might even indicate this. It says, one that stood by. Well, part of his vision is seeing around the Ancient of Days these thousands of thousands that are standing by the throne room. These seem to be the spirit beings that are attending God in a special way. And then the other multitudes that are there seem to be those that are about to be judged. But it's that first group, thousands of thousands, that maybe Daniel 
in his vision goes up to. He, he imagines himself or sees himself going up to and says, can you tell me? And the information comes back. Daniel is told of the uprising of the godless kingdoms of the earth in verse 17. But then, again, God doesn't just leave it there. Learns about the wonderful usurping by the godly. God's going to do this, but it's not just God solo in all of this. And this is really the important part, I believe, of the message here, is an emphasis on the participation of the godly. There's God, but then there's the godly. There's our Savior, but then there's the saints. He's really also recapping this very thought of the grandeur of God's kingdom coming in, rule, dominion, glory, all of this. If you go to the end of the chapter, verse 27, there's kind of a recapping going back, which tells me this must have been very important that now that Daniel is being led of the Holy Spirit to include this strong statement and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people, it says. They'll be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Well, what group is that? Folks, that's us. We're, we're set apart. We're holy by Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you've been sanctified by the work of Jesus Christ, you're a saint. And don't be afraid of that term. And if you read Corinthians, you know that Paul even addresses the, these believers in that, that community, the, in that church, that local church, even with all of their problems, all the things that he had to talk to them about. He says, you're called to be saints. That's what we are, set apart special by the work of Jesus Christ. And so there is not just Jesus as King of Kings, but Jesus saying, I'm going to share in a participating way this wonderful rule, this wonderful kingdom, also in a manner of speaking, the honor that goes along with it, with those that I love so much, the sheep that I've come to save, the believers that were once sinners, that have now been washed and made pure in the blood of the Lamb. What a wonderful thing it's going to be to serve and obey Him someday. We see this also talked about in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And it talks, we won't take time to turn there, uh, but you can jot this down. In, in this passage, it's talking about those that were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, washing their garments and therefore, their names are contained in this book that only the Lamb had the ability or the right to unseal. We often refer to it the Lamb's Book of Life. And those that are contained in that book, according to Revelation 5, have a special role moving into eternity. What is that role? Well, as Christians, part of that, that roster in that special book, we are established in that chapter, Revelation 5.10, to be kings. How about that? Jesus is king of kings, king of the ages, as we sang today. And Jesus is our great high priest, but we will serve in these roles of being lesser kings, lesser priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We know that even according to 1 Corinthians 6.3, that we shall even outrank the angels, and we need to understand that. Jesus talked about that, or Paul taught that, that there's a judging. Uh, not that the angels are going to go rogue and we're going to be correcting them and sending them off to do penance or something like that, but the idea that we will be administrating angelic creatures in the new economy of what God is doing in eternity. So in the new heaven and the new earth, maybe what this is about is correcting the original fall of creation. There's going to be, instead of starting off with something entirely different like has never been, we know that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, there was no problem with the original earth, but we know it got corrupt. It stands to reason that just like in the old earth, before the fall, Adam was given dominion, right? He had a job. He had a role. Having a job is not part of the curse, 
Part, having a job, having a role, is part of God's given paradise. So it stands to reason that we will have roles, we will have jobs, we will have duties, but we'll delight in them. They won't be grievous. There won't be this, I'm working for the weekend mentality, you know, and just, you know, it's just a way to get a paycheck. You know, all of these things, you know, that sometimes you hear people with regard to, you know, their roles or their tasks that sometimes they're in. You do meet people, and maybe, hopefully many of you, if you have a job, you're like, oh, I, I love doing what I'm doing, you know. They, you know, someone once said, if you love uh, doing what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It doesn't mean that you're not industrious. It just means, hey, it doesn't seem that hard because I enjoy it. I love it. You know, that's really going to be the epitome of eternity serving King Jesus someday, won't it? Perhaps this idea of this uh, roles and dignified roles is maybe what James and John were after in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, when they come to Jesus in a very fleshly way. We know that they didn't have the right approach in this, but they came to Jesus and they said, in the kingdom, right? They're thinking future. Grant that each of us can sit one on the right, one on the left hand. It wasn't wrong. Jesus didn't say to them, it's not going to operate that way, guys. Jesus said, that's not mine to give. There's going to be an assignment that's obviously going to happen by the Father in that role. But nonetheless, we are going to be part of the kingdom. We're going to be part of the, the court, if you would. Counselors, servants in this way. And so it's not just the kingdom of Christ, folks. It's a kingdom of the saints. That's part of what we'll be doing. It gives us something to be excited and to look forward to. So what, then, is the takeaway in all of this? Well, simply being able to enter eternity without facing torment forever is more than gracious of God toward the redeemed, right? I mean, if the only thing that the Bible told us that we can look forward to is not going to hell, not facing that torment where... You know, the warm dieth not, and there's, there's anguish forevermore. Not facing that would be like, I'm fine, you know, don't need anything else. If I'm bored for eternity, that's better than torment for eternity. But God knows how to give good gifts to His children. He is a good God. I say this because I remember as a young boy getting saved, having thoughts roll, roll through my mind, and probably because of a, a lack of good biblical training, not because it wasn't there. I had great, great parents, great Sunday school teachers, probably more of a lack of absorption on my part. I was probably just way too distracted with other things. But the point is, this idea of heaven, you know, though you don't voice it, it's like as a young boy I'm thinking, yeah. I want to go to heaven instead of hell, but I'm not really excited about heaven because I had what pictured it in my mind. It's going to be boring, right? Who wants to sit on a cloud and strum a harp, you know? And I hear Christians, and this isn't demeaning because maybe even you're, you're listening to this like, wait, that isn't what happened? You mean, you know, that time that Elmer Fudd dies in the cartoon and goes up and sits on the cloud, you know, that's, that's not how it happens. I'm here to tell you, number one, humans don't turn into angels. We're distinct creatures for all eternities, okay? And we'll get into more of this as the series goes on, but what our bodies are like are probably going to resemble more like the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in the time that He was around his disciples, appearing and so forth like that before he ascended. I mean, you know, one thing he could do is, boom, he was here and boom, he was there. He could walk into a room without opening a door. And so there's every evidence that uh, we're going to operate. And yet, maybe an ability to look at one another and recognize uh, who we have been just as they were able to recognize Jesus of Nazareth, even though he asked, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to my Lord, my Father in heaven. And so there's a lot of the unknown 
that ought to excite us in a direction of a good God that, God that has a great surprise in store for us. Gives us little hints and tidbits so that we'll be looking forward to it. That that will fill our minds rather than the perplexities of the economy and the price of gas and, you know, and what happens if we don't regain you know, power in the next election and so forth like that. You know, the Word of God depicts roles and responsibility for believers during the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. And Christ has chosen to share His kingdom with us in some functional and meaningful way. He doesn't need us. This is the, the Son of God who can speak all things into existence. Think anything and have it happen. The fact that He has created any beings to carry out roles just speaks of His goodness to us. And so what a humbling honor it is to us to be able to be part of what Christ has coming. The bliss of our glorified state is best understood with duties and responsibilities. Think about whatever those are going to be, we're going to enjoy, quote, getting up. I can't say every day because there's no sunrise, because there's no sun, because there's the S-O-N, so there's no need for that. And so we don't know how that's going to work, but, you know, do we not need to rest or sleep? Probably not. We don't get tired. And yet, we're going to love doing what we're doing. We won't have any bent of laziness. We won't have any bent of discontent. Perhaps he will delve out duties in unique ways, just as we see different angels functioning in different ways and in different capacities in our Bibles. But right now, we're not there, right? And so, our present service for Christ should be held with a very similar esteem and honor. I mean, folks, really, if you bring it right down to it, you can say, yes, I'll be excited to serve Jesus then. But that shouldn't resonate well in your mind if you're thinking that way. I should be excited about serving my Lord right now. Because there is still a kingdom of Christ. It's not in the form that will be someday. But His kingdom is going on right now, and it is progressing through the hearts of men and women who come to know Him as their personal Savior. And what a joy it is to be part of seeing that kingdom expand as we take on the role of being witnesses for Jesus Christ. An ambassador. What a regal role that we have right now, folks. And so it is a kingdom of saints. Something great to look forward to, but we're given a great taste of it right now. So let's be responsible with it. And let's enjoy it until King Jesus comes back for us for what he has next. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this exciting glimpse into the vision that you gave Daniel. Its significance for Daniel, for the children of Israel. How it was intended to bring hope. And Lord, how it's intended to bring hope to us. For we also look ahead for much of what is being described here. And yet, there is relevance for how we are to conduct ourselves in the same mindset, same heart, same passion, same zeal, same devotion for our King of Kings as we will someday into eternity. We don't have to be holding our breath, waiting for that moment of opportunity. So, Lord, help us to serve in your grace and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friend, today, hopefully you have a love relationship with Christ. Sometimes I meet people and, you know, they'll ask me, well, what do you do? You know, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I get to tell people about Jesus. I get to open the Word of God and teach people about what God's Word says. So it just doesn't get any better than that, you know. And, uh, oh, well, that's, you know, good for you, you know, sort of thing. And, uh, and then they say something like this. Oh, uh, I've gone to church. You know, I've, I've tried church. Kind of like they've tried the pink spoon of sampling ice creams at Baskin-Robbins or something like that. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it's not just about sampling. The Bible does say, taste and see that the Lord is good. We understand that. But you know, if you really, if you really get a good appetite for God, uh, you can never get enough. You'll want that relationship. 
And it's not when you're driven out of just fear and dread out of how you might be punished someday. Oh, I want to escape that. Hopefully we mature as believers into a love relationship. I confess when, when I found out that there was a hell and liars were going there, I was scared to death. And it's what God used from his word to help uh, work in my heart, in my spiritual ignorance, in my, my lack of any spiritual maturity whatsoever. I mean, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Thankfully, as I began to see my God in the word, I realized, no, there's a greater motivation. It's love, you know, because I see how much he loves me. I'm now motivated in love to him. And that's what we need to be as believers. We need to be motivated and driven by seeing the love of Christ for us. Therefore, we love him back. And when it's by love, there's, there's not a dragging our feet. It's not so hard to be an ambassador for Christ right now. And we're excited about being with him in eternity. You know, more than checking out our mansion, we're going to want to find Jesus. You know, I want to get to him. He's what it's all about. He's, he's the main point. And so today, maybe you find yourself here today and say, you know what, Jesus isn't the center of my life. You know, I know about the Bible. I know what it, a lot of what it says. I know he died on the cross. But it hasn't been driven home personally into my own life. It hasn't transformed me. And what I'm hearing from you, Pastor Wood, is the idea that this is like central to your life. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. And that's what God wants for you. He wants you to be his child. He wants to make you a saint. And he'll do that if you'll come to him and receive his son as your savior. So how do you do that? We would love to be able to help you with that. We've got very devoted, humble, well-trained counselors in the word that would love to take the Bible and show you how you can receive Christ your savior today. Don't go away without this unresolved in your heart. We'll give you an opportunity in just a bit. We'll have a moment where we have eyes are closed and the music's playing. Slip out of your seat. Come to where I'm standing. And I will very discreetly partner you with someone who would love to show you from God's word how you can be saved today. Christian, maybe you're here and you've gotten your eyes off the, the real target. And that is not just the kingdom to come, and it's Christ, but to realize he's included me. You know, he's given me a role of responsibility, a respectable one of honor. It's going to be so exciting to serve King Jesus someday, and it will. But you know what? It's exciting to serve him now. How are you doing? How are you doing serving King Jesus right now? Are we faithful ambassadors? Uh, maybe this would be a great opportunity for you just to do some heart searching, commune with the Lord. The altar would be open for you to come, pray if you like, or you can just do business with God there in your seats. But however the Spirit of God moves, I hope you'll respond. Will you stand with me with heads bowed, eyes closed? And as the piano plays, 